Welcome to Eloquentia Perfecta Ex Machina, a podcast series devoted to the teaching of rhetoric and composition with and through a range of media and focused on the writing program at St. Louis University. In this episode, Natalie Whitaker and Catherine Polizzi discuss with me their experiences establishing ethos in the classroom. We discuss how gender and age affect the dynamics of our classrooms and particularly comment on how this might be relevant for new teachers. Hello, I'm Byron Gilman Hernandez here with Eloquentia Perfecta Ex Machina, and today I'm joined by Catherine Polizzi and Natalie Whitaker. And we're here to talk about establishing authority in the classroom. And sort of the particulars of this were first established, the two of you were invited to speak with uh, Dr. Lynch's teaching of writing class. And Catherine, could you explain a little bit more about what you were talking about there? Sure. Uh, Well, a few months back, Dr. Lynch reached out to three current graduate assistant teachers. Um, All three of us had already been teaching for a few years, and so we had a decent amount of teaching experience. But he realized that in talking to many of his students, um, and this year in particular in that course, it seemed that there were a lot of young women who had never taught before, they had questions about how to establish teacherly authority. Um, And he sort of realized in that conversation that he had several advantages to teacherly authority that he couldn't quite speak to their experience. And so he effectively wanted us to come in, um, all three of us being fairly young women, and we had all been quite young women when we started teaching initially, to sort of speak about that experience and how over time we learned to establish teacherly authority. All right. And the third speaker, uh, Natalie Monzik, isn't able to be here um, recording during break, and she's already out of town. But uh, Natalie, can you tell a little bit about what you spoke about there? Yeah, so the how I started it was describing my first day of teaching because I did not go into grad school initially wanting to be a teacher. Of course, that's changed over the years. Um, but I was terrified my first day of teaching. And I had gone to orientation and I'd heard a lot of the talk of like, uh, don't tell people how old you are, don't tell, pe- don't tell your students that you're a grad student, try to build your authority based on essentially lies. Um, <laughs> and so I, that's what everybody was saying, and I walked in that first day and didn't tell them I was a grad student, didn't tell them it was my first day. I start going through the syllabus. It's about 20 minutes in. This is an 8 a.m. class. And I didn't realize I had never actually turned around to even look at the screen. And finally, one of my students raised her hand and said, "Um, you know, the projector's not even on, right? Because I had been going through the syllabus thinking that the, like I'm like scrolling through like on the computer and pointing to the point of behind me to the projector and like 20 minutes later it took and you know god bless her like for actually speaking up because otherwise that would have been even more extremely embarrassing but that's the moment when I realized okay my approach to building ethos in this classroom is not going to work now so I stopped everything and I said If you haven't figured it out, this is my first day teaching. (laughs) Um, I'm a grad student here at this university, um, and this is my first time using the technology. And that that kind of broke, I don't know how to say it, that that like broke that barrier 
for that class. It ended up being an amazing first class to have to teach. Um, they were so understanding and they, I think, appreciated the honesty. And it was building that mutual trust at that point where I kind of entrusted this very vulnerable Mm-hmm. you know, position to them saying like, I am very vulnerable. I, I am just learning what I'm doing. Um, this is my first semester. And they were very gracious with that information and were, and it, it, it was a really good way to start. And so after that, every time I've taught, I'm very honest with my students from day one. I am a grad student. This is not the only thing I have going on in my life. I also have projects. I also have this, I also have that. Um, I've been a student like you very recently, I understand what's going on in your life, and I feel like they respond well because they already know that I'm young, right? They mm-hmm. they they they've already figured that out. <laughs> um, so trying to pretend that I've had like years and years of experience when I haven't, they they can sniff that out. Um, so my approach is just be honest, and at this point, that's worked fairly well. <laughs> So your first time teaching wasn't at St. Louis University? No, no. It was at Missouri State University. Did you feel that there was ever like a difference, like going from the students of Missouri State a state school to um, St. Louis University private Catholic school? Definitely. There is a huge, well, there's not a huge difference. Uh, I would say that the top 25% of my class at at Missouri State is more than norm here. So um, everybody, well, 90% of the students want A's here at SLU, uh, while at Missouri State there's more of a, of a, of a curve. But yeah, all, all good students, all very respectful, but definitely just a different approach to their education. And Catherine, did you share any experiences with the class about uh, your own establishing ethos and authority? Oh, absolutely. Um, I came from sort of a different perspective in that I definitely knew I was going to teach. I applied for grad school right out of undergrad, and so I was very much looking forward to getting to teach, but it was a little intimidating for me to think about the fact that I was going to graduate with my BA and then roughly 12 weeks later be in front of a classroom teaching students pursuing their BA. It was just such a crazy turnaround for me. And so in my spring semester of my senior year, I had to think about that really actively, how I wanted to present myself and how on earth I was going to pull that off. And uh, I told the class, uh, Dr. Lynch's class, um, that I was really glad that Dr. Lynch had reached out to us and asked us to come talk about that because the same issue was something that I had worried about so much that I actually went into um, several female professors' offices that last semester and asked them, where am I supposed to be shopping? <laughs> like, how, do I, how do I dress? How do I act? How do I do this? Because I'm five foot two, you know, and I present female, and I don't necessarily exude that, right? That I actually identify as genderqueer. And so it's a really active performance for me to present feminine. But I knew that going into a classroom, I wasn't going to have the advantages that a lot of my teaching mentors had, right? Especially um, all through undergrad, a lot of the professors whose teaching strategies I really admired were men. But they had a sort of authority that they could walk into the classroom in chucks 
and that was fine. They could walk in in essentially just a t-shirt and jeans, but with a blazer on top, and that made it okay. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, you know, they could achieve a sort of like a banter with their students right off the bat, you know, a, a slightly more like aggressive or teasing manner that I would never be able to get away with without at least a great deal more experience than I was going to have. And so I really did have to make a conscious effort those first few semesters thinking about what it meant to present feminine and teach at the university level. So that was something that I really did work on. Um, and the you know similarly as with Natalie, I started out talking about my first semester teaching. And whereas Natalie's story is one of realizing that it's necessary to be radically honest with your students, uh, my first semester teaching, I came out guns blazing both barrels with lies. Like, (laughs) I mean, really just the opposite track. I told my students, you know, well, in the past, my students have blah, 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 lies. Um, You know, I have seen other students, blah, blah, blah. Well, that was technically true, but I was the other students, like me and my friends in undergrad. Um, So I, I decided essentially to pretend as though I had the teaching experience that I was actively acquiring And I got very fortunate that first semester in that I had really wonderful students. Um, I was also teaching at a state university. I was at the University of Iowa that semester. I had a group of honor students who were just very sweet and so willing to work and work with me and maybe look over the fact that I clearly didn't know what I was doing. (laughs) Um, But so so I, I did, I ended up performing, I think, in a way that I no longer feel the need to, right? That over time, I've definitely come to feel that um, learning is uh, a team sport <laughs> and, you know, that I'm, I'm willing to give away sort of some of my authority. I feel more comfortable now giving away some of my authority to my students right off the bat. Uh, but definitely that first semester, I mean, I was, I was trending very, very performative. So as you were talking about with sort of your own experience, giving some of the practical advice for students about like, you know, talking to peers about what to wear and talking to professors, I should say, about like what to wear and what to expect. Did either, did uh, Natalie or uh, you, Catherine, have any other like practical advice for our listeners who might be looking to go into teaching? Anything that you think would be helpful for them? I mean, the only thing after uh, listening to Catherine's story again is it is so radically different like mm-hmm. how how she approached her first semester compared to how I approached my first semester teaching and I think what we can gain from that is it's going to be different from for everyone mm-hmm. and yeah that might not be terribly comforting but it means it's all probably going to be okay yeah um <laughs> and I remember my my first director telling us in orientation you can't hurt them <laughs> you cannot like as long as you as as long as you know you know do not break like cardinal rules right uh-huh. like you stick with your syllabus be a you know do your best um but you're not de- dealing with a nuclear warhead mm-hmm. right like th- it's all going to be okay and it is a learning experience mm-hmm. um one thing that i remember being told also in orientation was not to use sarcasm mm-hmm. um and I am very sarcastic, and I've found that sarcasm sometimes actually does work to gain that bantering Mm -hmm. that Catherine talked about, that um, male professors are able to walk in and banter with students, right? Right. And as females, we do not necessarily feel like we can go in and do that. Mm -hmm. Sometimes there's a different situation, though, and you're able to read the room. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you can have that bantering, but it, it definitely does, I think, take some years of 
learning the classroom to figure that out. Right. Well, and I think also some time, you know, that uh, just as a, you know, female instructor walking into a classroom, you need to have your students on board. Um, before yeah. maybe you can do that. Whereas in, you know, I, I, as a student, I have been in classrooms where the, you know, a male professor walks in the first day and is just, you know, maybe a little crass or just a little caustic. <laughs> right. And it's funny, right? Because it's clearly just part of, you know, a personality that he's performing or presenting, um, but in a way that a female professor can't assume that it's going to go over well. Definitely. Yeah. I'm never sarcastic the first day. Like, it, it takes several weeks. And it's something that I really started realizing a couple of years ago that figuring out my classroom and getting truly comfortable where I don't feel like I'm walking in and doing some sort of performance yeah. is about midterms. It takes <laughs> a good half of the semester to get that kind of comfortable. That I think, like you're saying, that the first day for maybe a male instructor, it, it is the first day where they can right. like walk in and feel that way. Yeah. And I think actually, in terms of, you know, Byron, you're asking about if we have any advice. I would say that that's more what I would talk about is that it's not necessarily about what you wear. It's about establishing a, a space in which you are comfortable because that's where your authority will come from is that you do need the confidence that you know what you're doing. You're in front of the classroom for a reason. Um, and so it's not as much about your outfit as your demeanor. And so I work really hard to establish in rapport, just a rapport with my students right out the gate. And I, I do dedicate the first like two or three class periods to getting to know one another, which might slow down our progress in the first few weeks, but pays off enormously for the rest of the semester in that I'm comfortable with them. Generally, they're comfortable with me, hopefully, if it's going well. <laughs> and uh, it means that we can um, move a lot more quickly, right? That students are more willing to come to you for help, for advice, are going to be more receptive to your feedback, which is hugely important, if you have that connection established, and we can't always assume it. I know we kind of talked about this uh, before recording, but of one of the things to discuss, we're talking a lot more like in the general sense, and also both of you talking about your first day experiences, but I'm wondering, do any of you have any experience with what do we call this, like a remarkable circumstance, like an event where like you had a challenge to your authority from a student and you had to engage and manage that. Do you have any experience with that or advice for students who might be afraid of those circumstances? I have had teaching circumstances um, in which students were a little resistant um, and that's nothing, I don't think, foreign to any instructor, right? We've all had a semester in which there are students who don't necessarily want to be in your classroom. Maybe it's a, a core curriculum requirement that is outside their field, and so they're not as open to a new field of study, um, you know, what, whatever the, the cause may be, um, that I have had students who don't necessarily want to be there, and they end up sort of taking it out on you as an instructor. And I really do feel that making that connection is the, the best defense, the best sort of offense rather than defense, right, is working to make a connection with those students right out the gate. So in this particular instance, I had two students who I, I really did appreciate both of them in the classroom by the end of the semester. But at the beginning, they made me very nervous because they proposed for their um, sort of semester-long persuasive assignments. One of them wanted to do something in favor of abortion and the other wanted to do something against abortion. 
um, which was fine. But <laughs> they uh, re- each realized the other was there pretty quickly um, and then became sort of antagonistic to like the idea of, of being in the classroom in that situation. Um, and then as the instructor, I had to think about really like, how do I facilitate their best learning, right? How do I facilitate their best learning as classmates too, right? We don't want to establish this antagonistic connection. And so the way I ended up trying to work that was essentially trying to put each of them in contact with someone sort of on the opposing side, right, in a human way. So, you know, for the student who was very much worried about abortion, very against it, um, putting her in contact with people who weren't necessarily on the opposite opposite end, trying to persuade her otherwise, but just, you know, maybe someone from the scientific community um, who could give her language to talk about conception more specifically, that sort of thing. Um, and then on the opposite side, the student who's very, very, very pro-life with, uh, I'm sorry, very, very, very pro-choice, um, was very concerned about the pro-life camp and uh, demonized them in her rhetoric, right, in the way that she was writing about them. So I had her actually meet with a couple people um, who were religious um, and uh, just have a conversation, not actually about conception at all, but just a conversation, right? And so both students were able to move their rhetoric a little more in a way that was uh, less demonizing of the opposition. And that also made them less resistant to what I was doing as an instructor. Um, and so I think it's really just working with students to humanize us, right, as instructors, right, to, to help them realize that we're not trying to change their viewpoint or who they are, um, and that, you know, our role isn't to, to force them into any particular box, right, that they can still come in with a particular viewpoint or a particular belief and leave the classroom with it, that we're not trying to steal it away from them. And, uh, you know, give them that safe space to sort of learn new things still and, and explore other viewpoints. Final note. Um, so we think of our podcast audience here at EPM, a lot of our fellow SLU instructors and other people interested in teaching rhetoric and composition in the classroom. But I'm also wondering about um, some of our audience is people who are more established, not grad students, people who uh, have a bit more authority in sort of both a twofold question here. Are there any times where the administration or senior faculty have been very helpful for you and things that they've done that you'd like other, you know, faculty members to consider doing for their new teachers and grad students? Or is there anything on a broader sense that they could be doing that you'd like to see? One of the things that I've noticed is um, being observed is actually quite helpful, not just being observed by faculty, um, but being observed and then having a debriefing session where you mm-hmm. can talk about it. Mm-hmm. Because what established faculty don't always realize is that some of the things that they see in the classroom that are happening in an observation is because we're younger, because we're still building that authority, because of you know a million other reasons. But like I, I remember uh, one observation that I had by a male, my director was male and at a different university, and he asked me the debriefing about um, a student that had fallen asleep in the back of the class, mm. and he seemed so upset about the student who fell asleep, and the student is male, the mm-hmm. student was a football player. And the student and I had already discussed this issue before, right, where the student had constantly um, had 5 a.m. 
class meets and then we would meet um, training meetings for for football and then would come to class and was actually a really good student but would just sometimes like not off and I do not believe in embarrassing my students. I do not believe in calling them out. When there's a moment where I can like walk back and kind of like nudge a desk or something like that and like slowly wake them up, then that's something that I will do. But as a younger female, and at that time I was 25, <laughs> as a younger female, not much older than my student, it was very hard to to force them to do something that they didn't want to do necessarily without creating an antagonistic kind of classroom right Mm -hmm. um and after I explained that to the director he was so appreciative I guess Mm -hmm. would be the word like he said I he hadn't even thought about it that way he didn't even realize that was a problem Mm -hmm. for his younger female instructors Mm -hmm. and that he really just appreciated like knowing that that is something that maybe he needs to address in orientation and that sort Mm -hmm. of thing so I think just being open-minded being more transparent, talking about these issues, you know, like Dr. Lynch having us come and talk yeah. in, in the teaching of writing class, mm-hmm. that is what is needed. Right. Yeah, I absolutely think awareness is the, the biggest thing. Um, and I would say on two counts, one is the emotional labor, which I think is sort of what you're talking yeah. about, um, that female faculty are expected to do emotional labor for their students more than men are sometimes. And that expectation comes from the students, and it also sometimes comes from the faculty, right? And we there are studies out there. We know that uh, you know women are more likely to say yes when asked to do something, and therefore they get asked more often, <laughs> and so they end up doing a disproportionate amount of labor on things like committees or in departments, that sort of thing. Uh, and so you know this isn't so much about the statistics, but about the emotional labor, where that that work distribution ends up similarly skewing towards women because we're more likely to get students emailing us at all hours, more likely to get students coming to cry in our office. And it's not that those things shouldn't happen. Um, it's it's good that students do feel that there is a connection with a faculty member that they can go cry in your office, for example. That's It's sometimes necessary. But an awareness that uh, that does take up, that takes up hours, that takes up your emotional capacity, right, to, to be giving to your students in that way. Um, so there's that aspect, right? To be aware that you're, you know, the, the women who uh, are in your department as colleagues are probably doing a certain amount of emotional labor for their students that maybe male colleagues aren't being asked to do, right? And so, um, you know, that might mean in your own classroom telling your students that you are available for that maybe. Um, and, you know, so one, awareness, but two, also maybe, you know, being aware that that labor is actually needed and, and volunteering yourself a little more. That would be great. <laughs> um, but something else is the issue of evaluations. Um, and this was something you were talking about teaching evals, but, you know, not just observations, but like the actual end of semester evaluations. Um, between men and women faculty, it's not always apples to apples in that uh, this is actually a, an example that I know of when I was at the University of Iowa, I had a colleague who very consistently had students commenting on her personal appearance in the other, like the other comments section of her evals. Um, And I know that that has shocked some of my male colleagues to hear that women actually will get those kinds of comments, like about our particular dress or our personal appearance, particularly if there's anything like odd or quirky. And it, it might seem complimentary in, you know, the, you know, oh, I love how she dresses, you know, she dresses so beautifully sometimes, but, you know, it's still a reflection on the way that we present physically rather than our quality of teaching. 
Um, and that's assuming that it's positive. Right. <laughs> so, you know, to be aware that that's also something that, you know, some faculty members have to, to think about is that what they wear into the classroom might end up being reflected on evaluations they necessarily need for future jobs, right? That uh, it's, it's just sort of an extra burden to consider. All right. Well, Catherine, Natalie, thank you very much for being here and sharing your stories. Thank you for having us. Thanks, Byron. And to everybody listening, have a good day. If you'd like to get involved in this podcast series, share an assignment, tool, or even to pitch an interview, please contact me, Byron Gilman Hernandez at byron.gilmanhernandez at slu.edu. Eloquentia perfecta ex machina. Eloquentia perfecta ex machina. Eloquentia perfecta ex machina.